So, since we're uh, working through the Psalms in uh, main service, I thought we would open in Philippians this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Whoever would like to read out, please do so. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort for love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So what's that passage about? When you read that, what pops off the page and strikes you? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Be humble. So what does that mean to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain Selflessness. Selflessness. I think verse 3 kind of is the, is the thesis of it. Uh, and you really count others more significant than yourself and use Christ as your example. Yep. So humility. <laughs> Regarding uh, one another is more important than yourselves. And, and Christ is the example of that. So when we think of, of Jesus and um, he was in many ways very bold but he was also at the same time very humble. So obviously humility doesn't mean meekness. What is, what is the humility of Christ? No, it could be meekness, just not weakness. Right. That's probably a better statement. It doesn't mean weakness. So, so what does it mean? Jesus was meek, but not weak. I've always heard meekness is not weakness, it's strength under control. Exactly. Strength under control. Okay. <coughs> so humility being strength under control? I've always heard it's that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Mm-hmm. And that's the direction that I'm going trying to think of humility as uh, a way of valuing others. Mm-hmm. Right? So it doesn't mean that you devalue yourself. Many times we think of being humble as devaluing yourself. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, being weak when really you're not. Um, you're created in God's image. Right? So um, and many times I think we think too much of ourselves and too little of others. We don't place value on others. And yet, 
Christ, it says, valued others so much that even being, uh, even though he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So that is that he didn't, he didn't need to assert himself as deity. He already was deity. Right? But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it says he emptied himself to take the form of a bondservant. So here is God in the flesh. That's what it says, right? Didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped because he is God. Didn't need to assert himself, make himself more. It's who he is. And yet, he emptied himself, and in emptying himself, he took the form of a bondservant. What is a bondservant? It's a slave. Servant. Pardon? A willing servant. A willing servant. One who uh, is not under compulsion. In other words, they weren't sold into slavery. Uh, because of a debt, but rather as a free person, in their freedom, submitted themselves for another's well-being, right? So they, they serve their master. And that's pretty, pretty amazing when you think of Christ actually becoming a bondservant. Now, who is he a bondservant to? And why was he a bondservant? Pardon? Speak louder. Right. So this is this is uh, helping us understand the triune nature of God. Right. So we understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And here is um, the the Son, who is fully God but also fully man, right? And he empties himself, taking the form of a bondservant, which means he became fully subservient to the will of his father, right? Such that if you looked at him, you would actually see the will of the father expressed. In fact, he could say that his, his very words were God's words. Kim? They are. So I think of this as um, servant leadership, you know. So, um, and that's what we're supposed to be for others. I mean, it's difficult because it's again being selfless. Yeah. But it's like when Jesus took the towel, wrapped it around himself, started washing the disciples' feet, which is the lowest of low jobs, yeah. and saying, This is what you should do for others. <coughs> and, and I think of Peter, you know, man after my own heart. <laughs> no, Lord, you, no, you're not going to wash my feet. You know, and then saying, if I don't wash your feet, I have no part of Okay, then do my whole body. Right. You know? mm-hmm. so. Jesus said, no, you don't have any need to be, be washed. Right? You're already clean. 
but you need, nonetheless, needed to have his feet clean. So to me, it goes back to what Bob Goff was talking about at the missions conference, which was love, you know, crazy, uh, and start with the lowest of the low. Yep. If you don't know where to start, you know. And start with family, and then, <laughs> you know, lowest of the low. That, that is a great example. That's actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible. You go to chapter, John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or to the uttermost, or eternally. That's how much he loved them, such that even if no one caught what he was presenting from God, about the love of God, he would do it anyway. He would have washed their feet, even if Peter never got the message that this was Christ humbling himself, emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's an incredible statement about what it means to value others so much that you give everything for them. That's what God has done for us. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Anybody know what that name is? Jesus. Paul uses it 26 times in the last three chapters of Ephesians. Right? He's used it 26 times in all of Ephesians, 24 times in the last three chapters. Lord. Because Lord is saying something about your relationship to the one whom you call Lord. Right? Uh, is Lord. Theos is God which in many ways it can be the God, so it can be personal. Um, and that's when we look at the first part of John that says, um, and the word became flesh, right? In that passage where it's talking about deity. But when it's talking about relationship, our relationship to God, it uses the word Lord, that he is our Lord. Because there's a difference, yeah. right? There's the capital L, lowercase well, O-R-D, and then so, there's the capital... So let me distinguish between <laughs> New Testament yeah. Greek and Old Testament Hebrew. So in Hebrew, uh, there are a few different words for God, and uh, the more general way of saying it is L. So if you have uh, L attached to something, it's saying something about God. So, for example, the name of God's people that he called through Jacob, who got his name changed, was Yisrael, which means ones who struggles with God, right? who wrestle with God. Because the story of Jacob is, when he got his name changed, is when he said, I will not let go until you bless me. In other words, he wanted a relationship with God, even though he had lived his whole life as a worldly man. He got to the end of himself, and he was all of a sudden becoming humble. 
right? So talking about humility, and the reason I'm focusing in on this, I realize this is a long introduction to Ephesians, but that's what we're talking about in Ephesians right now. We're moving to um, Jesus, the Christ, as our Lord, and his humility being what he's called us to, to be humble as he is humble, to love and value others as he loves and values others. And an incredible statement is that as a result of who God is, right, for this reason, God highly exalted him, that is Christ, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, Lord. So the Old Testament that Karen was alluding to is in Psalm one or Psalm one ten. Oh, we did end up in the Psalms. Psalm one ten says, "The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps." If you look at it in a NASB or King James uh, translation, that is the word that is the personal name of God, which we uh, put vowels to, and we say Yahweh. Or if you say it in German, you'd say Yahovah, right? And so Jehovah, Yahweh, they're just different pronunciations where the vowel points are put to the consonants and then translated within a, a language. So in English, we'd say Yahweh. In uh, German, they say Yehovah and Yahovah. And so anyway, um, that says the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, which is Adonai. And that would be the New Testament equivalent of Kyrios. It's Adonai in the Hebrew, but that means that it's the Lord whom you can have a personal relationship with. The one who is indeed God, uh, he doesn't need to grasp, is what it says here. He existed in the form of God, not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He didn't need to assert himself, but nonetheless, he is Emmanuel, right? Which means uh, God with us. Right? There's that name of God, El, in there, Emmanuel. And that is the same that we would understand from Psalm 110 as Lord Adonai. In fact, for our understanding of how we relate to God as our Lord in Jesus, they took the vowel points, the vowel uh, symbols that they ascribed to the word Adonai, and they put it with the consonants that make up the proper name of God, Yahweh, those vowel sounds that we put in there are the very vowel sounds that are in Adonai. So they wanted us to understand that this is God with us. And that's why Psalm 110 is so remarkable, because it says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, this is David speaking in the Spirit, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the first verse of Psalm 110. And what that's saying is exactly what it says here in Philippians. It says, for this reason, God also highly exalted him, bestowing on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is, Jesus the Christ, the one who is who emptied himself, who became a bondservant 
to his Father for the sake of those whom God loved so much that he would die, even the point of death on a cross, for us, right? That's the one that has been placed as Lord above all. He's been exalted high above the heavens, right? So that means every, everything everywhere answers to Jesus. All of creation, angels, people, the whole smash, all of creation answers to him and will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I started in Philippians because we're actually in chapter 4, if you just go a couple pages back, of Ephesians. This is where we left off last time. And I'm going to read uh, to you the first 16 verses. And I think I read that last time and we got part of the way through it. But I want you to kind of overlay it with this understanding of your calling as followers of Christ to be as he is, to be imitators of him. Right? It says, therefore, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended, far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual's part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And I don't even know where to start. This is just so rich. Tim? Okay, so we started in Philippians. Yep. And um, it really con- contrasts how uh, awesome Christ is. Okay? Um, that uh, every nation bowed, every time confessed um, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Lord, the Father. So he, he is exalted, no question. Right. And we are supposed to be humble. Why do you suppose that is? Selfless. Mm-hmm. So it has to be asked. Mm-hmm. I have to ask myself. 
how we doing? Well, I know he's exalted. Yeah. But I know I'm not humble. <laughs> well, exaltation does not remove humility. Right? Because humility is not weakness and exaltation is not strength. I'd say that's true, but but again, Ephesians four, you know, walk worthy, humility and gentleness. I mean, I'm getting hit on every side, so I, I think we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing? Right. You know, and I know for me, I got the wrong video. <laughs> well, and and we do. That's why when we get down to fourteen, as he says, as a result of everything that you just read, um, we are no longer to be children. In other words, you may be children, but you're supposed to grow up. And and what does it mean to be children? Right? He kind of describes that a little bit. But he says, we are to grow up, in verse 15, in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. In other words, we and he says this more explicitly in chapter 5, which you pointed out, chapter 5, verse 1. See, Paul's making both a theological statement and an ethical directive in chapter 4. And what my statement has been about the organization of Ephesians is that the first three chapters are about theology. They're Paul's theological core message, our identity in Christ, who we are in him, who God is, what he's done for us, that he has blessed us in the heavenlies with all spiritual blessings, right? It says in verse 1. And then he unpacks what that means, who God is, who we are in Christ, what he's done for us, our salvation, right? That is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it has nothing to do with you, but it has everything to do with God. Now he turns from a theological presentation of our identity in Christ to now, how shall we walk? And he uses the word, how shall we walk? Right? He says, I implore you to walk, that is behavior, so we're talking about an external uh, manifestation in the world of an internal condition. This is where, um, if we want to understand what are the distinctives of Christianity, and a few weeks back I asked you, what are the distinctives of Christianity? And came up with five, and there are probably more, but we know that um, we have faith, we have hope, and we have love, and that those are... Um, they endure regardless of the state of the world and creation faith, hope, and love remain right, we know that from a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians but then there are two other aspects grace and truth that what we do is we embrace the truth about reality as God has revealed it We embrace it as he's revealed it through his general revelation. When I look out at the world, I see God's fingerprints, right? Whether I have clear vision or not is my problem because my handicap is my own. It isn't because God handicapped me. He wants me to see him. He wants me to discover him. And it even says that in Romans, that he made it clear to us, evident, through creation, that we should we should know him, right? But then he went a step further. He revealed himself perfectly to us in his son, and that that's been preserved in the scriptures from the very beginning, 
right? So I have two revelations of God, and what is a distinctive of Christianity is that we believe that that is true. We believe what the world thinks is absurd. That God would love us so much that he would solve the one problem that is universal as a result of sin, which is death. Right? There may be, um, I don't know, I know my own sin, and I know the result of that sin in my life and the loss and destruction that that's caused, but the one thing that I know is true of everybody is that all die. Right? And you might be able to go to some place on the earth where you don't pay taxes, but you're not going to go any place on the earth where you're not going to die. Right? So I say two things are universally true, death and taxes. Right? Coming up on tax season, so i got to get my punch in there. But one thing that is universally true is death is a result of sin. Because one sin, all die. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. But because of one's obedience... On our behalf, he humbled himself, placing value on us. He gave his life such that we could live. Right? That's that's unique. That's what the Bible tells me. That's the story of the gospel. The gospel message is that I'm a sinful person and lost. And that the consequence of that is, is that I'm eternally separated from God. But that God so loved me that he came and took the sin which separated me from him on himself, died my death, and that his life, which was proved as he was raised from the grave on the third day, is my life. I read that in several places, and Paul makes it really clear. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. That's what it says. This is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins and was buried, according to the scriptures. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and for our, our eternal life, right? So I read that, and it's like, I know that that's, that's a true theme, and that's what makes a Christian. If you have any other thing that you think makes you a Christian, it has no basis in, in truth, right? There are many things that we might uh, embrace, and, and Paul actually talks about that here. Right? He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So we might get all hung up on baptism, because we're Baptists, right? So our understanding of baptism is that it's a testimony, not a sacrament. It doesn't impart grace to you, but rather you identify with what Christ did for you. Christ, in dying for you, took your sin and died your death. Go under the water. Right? And just as he was raised on the third day, we are raised together with him. That his very life, which is eternal, is our life. That if I have any life at all, it is his. That's what Paul says in many places. He has nothing of himself. It's all about Christ. And, and that's what it says. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. So, Paul's trying to make the point here that there is, no, there is nothing outside of this reality, this truth, of who God is. But coupled with truth, 
Another distinctive, which I call the fifth distinctive of Christianity, is you've got faith, hope, love, truth, there would be grace. What is grace? We talked about that when we were trying to unpack what God has done for us, unmerited favor. It's a, a nice, easy way to remember it. Grace is um, what we want to show today to our, our wives and girlfriends and those we care about. Today is Valentine's Day. So what do you do on Valentine's Day? You can get chocolate, you can do a card, right? You might actually wash the feet of your spouse. Now I'm not, some people might, yeah, some people might say literally wash the feet. But the point is, is that you would be a servant where you would value that person the same way that God values you. That you would be gracious, showing unmerited favor, not about yourself, but all about them. That's what Jesus did for us. It wasn't about himself. He, he emptied himself. Remember what it says in Philippians? He emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. He gave himself for us. So every week I close in prayer in here and, and I, I think of the logo on the side of a police cover, right? To protect and to serve. And I always throw one in there. To protect, to provide, and to serve. So every week you'll hear me closing here and I, I touch on that. Because part of God's love for us is he protects us. He rescued us from the pit of destruction, it says in Psalm 40. He rescued us from the muck and the mire. And he pulled us out and he put our feet on a solid rock. Right? He protects us from that which would destroy us. The enemy of our soul desires to, to what does it say in John 10.10? 10? The enemy comes. Steal, kill, and destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to take from you everything of value. Steal. He wants to... Um, bring death where there is life. He wants to kill. And he wants to destroy. He wants to utterly separate you from the source of all good and all life. So when we talk about God, we say God is good. Right? All the time. All the time, God is good. It's because it's who he is. We say God is love. Love is not just something um, that you do, like on Valentine's Day, I'm going to show love, I'm going to buy some chocolate. Um, or I was going to make chocolate fondue. <laughs> um, but it's something that you are. That's God is love, means it's an essential attribute of God. It's his essence. He is good, and as good, he can state what is right. He is righteous. He is love. So he can state that love in creation. He can express it personally. Because love we think of as a personal thing. Right? That's what we are to become. We are to have that same unity says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So, 
This is more than just a personal thing, though. It's also a corporate thing. So just as Jesus came into the world not just to save me, which that would be good enough for me, Mm -hmm. right? But he also came to save you, and you, and you, and you, and you. He came because that every person in the world was suffering in that same place. They all needed his protection. They all need his provision. They all need the service that he provides in love by washing our feet, by helping us when we're children to grow up. Right? That's, that's what I pray every week in here when we leave. So I'm just I'm giving you the, the preview. This is what's going to happen in 25 minutes. Here. Right? Because that's, and I was thinking this week, so I'm, I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm looking out at the world, and, and Karen said, how was Washington, D.C.? I said, well, it was exciting and challenging, and uh, I can't remember the last word. I think it was something like wearying. It was very exhausting. Uh, it made me very tired. And the tiredness wasn't a physical drain. It was when I look at the world and I see the brokenness, that, that causes a real heaviness for me. You know? and, uh, and yet I could also see the fingerprints of God. God is working today, even though we're in a nation that is really messed up. That's my view of things. Um, and yet I could see his fingerprints to save individual people, to make a difference in people's lives. That's what Paul's calling us to as an ethic. So we talked about morality and ethic. And I put this little poem up here. I know I showed this a few weeks back. Um, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. The eyes of better pupil and more willing than the ear. Find counsel is confusing, but example is always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see the good in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. All the lectures you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may misunderstand you and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. So that's telling me exactly what Paul is telling me when he says he implores us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. To be an imitator of Christ in his love, his humility. And he even spells that out. Gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That's a hard thing, right? Um, you know, all of these I see as hard. It takes effort. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. All of that takes effort. Because it's not about rules, right? Rules do not make an ethic. They do not make you an ethical person. We know that because I shared a couple weeks back, I'm a professional engineer, I have to take an oath uh, as part of, I have to pass an ethics exam as part of my professional registration in the state which says that I will, you know, be responsible in my engineering practice. Um, I will do no harm. Right, so all these different professions have an ethical declaration, but I would say initially that ethic was based on a theology. That people that knew God 
were aware of him chose to behave in a way that was like him. Over time, people forgot who God was, but they still saw the practice, so they adopted the practice. They adopted the rules. But the rules did not make the person moral, did not make for ethical behavior. All it did was describe what ethical behavior was. In order to truly walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, you have to know who called you and why he called you. And why he called you is about what he placed us in the world to do. So this is the part that was exciting for me when I was back on the East Coast. I'd look around and I could see places that God has particularly designed me according to his purpose that I could do a good work. That's what it told us in Ephesians that we were created for. Right? We were created to do good works. I read in chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Right? God has made me, he has made you special. He's made you unique. There are no two snowflakes alike, right? There are no two people alike in God's creation. Everyone has a unique um, calling by God on their life. Now, it may look similar to somebody else's, but it's unique. God chose you and placed you in this point in history for some good work. Right? And we need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We need to know who he is and who we are in him so that our behavior matches the theology. We need to understand the theology. We need to understand who we are in Christ. And then we need to imitate that Christ in us, in the world. We need to do that. Right? That's what he's saying here. And that a key to this is understanding humility. The very humility of Christ. That's why I started out in Philippians this morning. If we know who he is and what he has done, it does more than just bring us to tears. It causes us to, to behave, to act in a manner likewise. And that that likewise manner of acting we call the church. Right? Those who are Christian, who have these distinctives as part of who they are, and that are truthful, behave according to that who is their master, their Lord. They, they act like he acts. And what we see is, is that that is what we would uh, see as gentleness and patience and tolerance, preserving unity, and being able to um, profess the hope of our calling, right? So here I am in Washington, D.C., and, and uh, I'm surrounded by all sorts of uh, highbrow folks. I didn't run into Obama, but, you know, <laughs> president's men, SES guys. And, um, I, and I see them with not value because of their position or title, but value because God created them just like he created me. And that they have a need to know Jesus just like I have a need to know 
Jesus because my knowledge of him in my heart is what affects my behavior in the world. And so my job is to, in the place that God has put me, profess the hope that I have, the hope of my calling. You're also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So I want to profess all of that. I want to profess that I was buried with Christ and raised with Christ. And it says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. What was the measure of Christ's gift? Anybody want to venture a guess? Everything. He gave it all. He left nothing on the table. He poured out his life. And Paul will even say as he actually lives this out, that each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, that Paul says, you know, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. So if you know anything about the sacrificial system, which you can read about in Leviticus, there's this thing called the drink offering, and it's part of um, a worship of God where you're in, in awe of who he is and what he's done. You pour out um, this drink offering such that there's nothing left on the altar. right? And in fact, all of these sacrifices, not all of them, but uh, one of them is a picnic, right? You get to share it with your, your family. Uh, but some of them, like the burnt offering, which is about atonement, it's fully consumed. There's nothing left. That's exactly what Christ did. That is the measure of his gift to us. And each one of us were given this grace. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So you have been given that. And it says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So this is from Psalm 68. And if you read Psalm 68, it's a Psalm of David. You'll say, what? What's this talking about? How does this have anything to do with Christ? Well, it does. It has to do with the defeat of the enemy and the exaltation of God over his enemy. In fact, we're going to hear about Psalm 2 this morning in the main service. Bob's going to do an exposition on that. Um, Last week, Bob did an exposition on Psalm 1. And what you're going to see is contrasted the way of the world and the way of God, right? And that's what is continuing a theme throughout, and especially in the Psalms, because we see it in the wisdom literature, the response to the revelation of God. That in Psalm 68, we see, uh, and, and Paul is applying this to Jesus. It says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. So when he's talking about Christ, Christ is the one who ascended on high. And he even says that in this next uh, parenthetical. So if you have uh, um, like the NIV or maybe an NASB, you'll see that it actually puts parentheses in there. So this is Paul's way of... I was like, okay, I've just made a statement now. I'm going to drill down on that statement, but I don't want you to lose context of where you were, so I'm going to put it in parentheses. So it's a parenthetical statement. It says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Now, we know that that's the revelation about who the Christ is. Right? When it says that he descended, and some would take this as part of a, 
a later church tradition where it says he descended into Hades. He descended into hell. It doesn't say that here. It doesn't actually say that anywhere in the Bible. What it's talking about is the one who had his throne in heaven, who was in perfect communion, God, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, perfect communion from before creation, chose to leave his heavenly abode, his place of natural residence, right, to come to earth, to become fully human. That's what this is telling us. That the Son, fully God, descended from heaven to earth to become fully man. We know that that's true because we have a whole lot of other um, prophetic utterance that tells us that's exactly what Jesus would do. So, And, and Jesus cites that when he's talking to uh, Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 50. What happens is, is that Jesus is calling, it's the story of him calling disciples, and he comes upon Nathaniel and he says, oh, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Nathaniel recognizes that no one could have seen him there, that only God could have seen him there. And he said, oh, well, you are the son of God. He says, well, you think that that's impressive, that God knows where you are all the time. He knows your heart. You're going to see after this, the gates of heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, he was making an allusion to an Old Testament prophecy that was given to Jacob, whose name got changed to Israel, when Jacob was on the run, when he was leaving because he stole his brother's birthright and his blessing. His brother wanted to kill him, so he's headed to Uncle Laban to become a crafty man of the world. And he's on the road, and he comes to this place called Bethel. And that means house of God. Jacob named it that because in that place he laid down, put his head on a rock, which I can't imagine a rock for a pillow. <laughs> Lays down, puts his head on a rock, and he has a dream about heaven opening, the gates of heaven opening, and a ladder or a stairway came down. And the angels would ascend and descend on this ladder. So we call it Jacob's ladder. Right? But the difference is, is in Jacob's uh, vision, he sees heaven gates opened and heaven gates closed that that ladder remains separated from humanity until the one who is the ladder comes, the one who is the bridge between heaven and earth. That is Jesus. He is the one who descended. He who descended is himself also, he is who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So what we see is we see a perfect exposition of what what David in the spirit was talking about. And he says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. God came from heaven in the person, Jesus, and he dwelt among us and we beheld him. Right? He was touched. John loves to tell you that. He says, I paid with him, I saw him with my eyes, I touched him with my hands. He's my brother. That's Jesus. He came from heaven to earth. He descended. And when he ascended, when he was buried in the tomb three days, and on the third day, they went to the tomb and the rock was rolled back, and they went in and he wasn't there. No one had come to rescue him. God himself raised him from the dead. 
And he appeared before the 12. He appeared before more than 500. A lot of people saw him. They actually saw him ascend back to where he came from. So what we know uh, preceded uh, Pentecost. So Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. And that 40 days after this occurred. So Jesus was crucified on the Passover was buried, was raised, so I'll give you some dates here, you can believe them or not. On April 3rd, 33 AD, he was crucified. He died before the sun set. They took him, they laid him in a tomb, they hastily wrapped him in, in burial cloths and spices, put him in a tomb and sealed it. And the Roman guards were so intent, or the, the, uh, the I should say the, the Sanhedrin, were so the Jewish leaders were so intent that they didn't want him to be stolen, and people claim that he was raised from the dead, that they went to the Roman governor and said, place guards at the tomb. So they placed guards there. He was in the tomb, under guard, and on the first day of the week, Sunday, that they went after the, the Sabbath had passed, and the Passover had been completed, they went to the tomb to properly bury him, because you've got to do it a certain way, according to Jewish ritual. And they found he wasn't there, right? That he had been raised from the dead. And 40 days from the time of his crucifixion, he appeared to people, ate with them, helped them understand the scripture, that it was all about him, that this was the revelation of God, that this was for them. And then he was at the Mount of Olives, which is right across from the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And it was there that he was taken up into heaven. An angel came to the men that were there and saw this as they were seeing Jesus ascend. And they, and the angel said, don't worry. Just as you see him ascend, he will descend again. But when he returns, he comes back as the conquering king, not the, not the one who's pouring his life out for all, but rather to restore righteousness. And so we understand that, and that's, that's what we believe. That's what this is telling us. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. So that, that was a, a way in, uh, of saying that because in the warrior clan of the day, what they would do is when they would conquer a people, they would kill a bunch, right? But they would always take some group of them as captives, and they would march them before them as they came back home. And it would be... with the Romans later called a triumph parade, right? They would show their triumph by bringing the captives. Well, it could have two uh, meanings. One, it could be that these are the ones that we conquered, or it could also be these are the ones that were set free. So an example of that would be uh, Abraham, when he went against the five kings, and these kings had taken captive um, Lot, and his descendants, and they had destroyed these cities down in the, the Jordan Plain, and they had, and Abraham hears about this, like Lot's been taken captive, and he takes his army, and he goes, and he chases them all the way up to near Damascus, and sets free the prisoners that were captured. So those that were previously in a triumph parade as captives are now the ones who have been set free, that Abraham parades back and says, the, the captives are now set free. He ascended on high. He led captive a host of captives. That's what it's talking about. That he took those that were bound in chains and death 
And he, he shows that now they've been set free. And he gave gifts to men. What was the gift? It was the grace of God. It's eternal life. And that's why he gives this little parenthetical explanation of ascension and descension. He wants us to understand this is what Jesus did for us. This is the theology that motivates our ethics. And then he goes on, he says, now, we want you to understand, you're not, you're not left alone uh, without a continuing revelation of God. So like I said, I was in Washington, D.C., I was seeing, seeing the fingerprints of God. I could see God working, even in a messed up place, right? So it says here, he gave some apostles as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. So those that um, have been not um, given more value than you, it's not about that you have a position of, of exaltation, because we talked about exaltation and humility, right? Rather, you have these that um, God has in some way worked in their life that their calling is to equip you, right? So Paul was in this, this group. He was an apostle. He was one that actually saw Jesus, that had a specific um, mission from God to take that revelation to the Gentile world. That's why he wrote this letter, right? This is Paul acting as an apostle, and he recognizes that he was walking according to the calling to which he had been called. He says, and guess what? You're going to have some prophets. You're going to have some evangelists. You're going to have some pastors and teachers. It's combined. Shepherds, teaching shepherds. Um, and that the purpose is equipping of the saints for the work of service. In other words, so that you can do that which God saved you for. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you should walk in them. So what you're seeing is that you're not left alone, that this is all about building you up to serve, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, that perfect revelation of God that motivates our ethical behavior, which is knowing Him personally, right? Having a right theology, and that that's the basis for my actions in the world, that's what we are to do. We all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What does a mature man look like? Looks like Christ. Doesn't mean he is Christ. <coughs> Looks like Christ. I'm getting the I'm getting the five minute warning here. That's <laughs> the zero minute warning. So so now as as Tim would would come and say, now hold it, I don't look anything like Christ. I disagree. Tim's not gonna agree with me. What I see is I see a work of God as Tim wrestles to understand, to see the face of God. So when Jacob wrestled with God, at the end of the wrestling match, he came face to face with God. And so he named that place Peniel, which means face of God. Right? And that that changed him and the way that he lived his life from that point forward. He understood the humility to which he needed to walk. Right? 
So what I would say is, no, we are becoming that. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So hopefully I've done none of those things because I'm here to proclaim the word of God and hopefully none of it is deceitful scheming or craftiness or trickery of men uh, or some wind of doctrine. What I desire is to declare to you the word of God and the word of God only. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. From whom the whole body, that's all of us, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, and I know I'm over here, what that means is that everybody in here has a purpose and a value in the church in addition to having a purpose and a value to God personally. So how you are in community is that you are supplying that special gift that God has put in you to the service of all of humanity into the body of Christ. According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Happy Valentine's Day. It's all about love. So, a lot more can be said. Karen signaled me I'm three minutes past. So, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to reread this three times this week. Ponder it. Because this is your call to service. This is what it's all about. And this is How Now Shall We Live, right? Great book. How Now Shall We Live? Let's let's ponder that this week and look for it not in grandiose schemes that you would do, but in the very thing that God created you and gifted you for, right? Where you're sitting is where he placed you. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, We just thank you for your word to us. We thank you for Paul, who did indeed pour himself out as a drink offering, giving his very life um, that he would be able to bring the message uh, of your salvation, the message that you came to die for our sins, that you were raised for our justification, for our eternal life, Lord. Um, And... Those are just words, but Lord, help us to truly understand the meaning of what what that is. Help us to, as we read through the, the word this week, as we listen to messages on the radio and the service here this morning, um, Lord, that your spirit would minister to our hearts, that you would convict us of sin, that you would uh, challenge us to walk true, to be truthful, faithful. Lord, and help us never to lose hope. Lord, we thank you for um, the, all that you've done for us, for your um, protection of us, for your provision, Lord, which we can't even take a breath without, Lord. And we thank you so much for your service to us, Lord, that you have given your all for us and given us value. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this. We pray in your name. Amen. Yeah.